Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 162, Contributing to the Gross National Happiness. We're joined this week by longtime contemplative education professor Richard Brown to explore his recent involvement in helping the government of Bhutan reform their public education system with contemplative and holistic principles in mind. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today in the Boulder studio with a Boulder native, Mr. Richard Brown. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to come down and speak with us today. Really appreciate oh, it's it. really wonderful to be here. Cool. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And Richard, you, you have a really cool background here. We were talking a little before the interview, and it sounds like you've been a teacher for quite a long time. You've done graduate work at Naropa, and you actually helped found the contemplative education department there in the in the 90s. And, and your contemplative side, on the other hand, is you've been a longtime student in the tradition of Chugyam Trungpa. You were a student here way back in the day. And, and of course, you're married to Judith Simmer Brown. Right. And that's, I'm guessing, how you met her. Yeah, we, yeah. Actually, we met up at Shambhala Mountain Center, which was then uh, Rocky Mountain Dharma Center. We were both sitting a month-long uh, meditation program, and we fell in love, and it was back uh, in 78. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, when I spoke to Judith last, when we interviewed her, she mentioned that the two of you, and, and you in particular, were invited by the government of Bhutan to come help reform their educational system that she thought it would be really great to speak with you. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course, it'd be great to speak with you. <laughs> so I was just interested in hearing, like, what were you invited to do? And why are they um, reforming their educational system? This was such a last summer when I first got a call from the organization that was helping to work with the government of Bhutan. I was just completely astounded that this was happening, that they were actually thinking about reforming the entire public education system from pre-K all the way up through higher education based on contemplative principles, holistic principles, sustainability, cultural integrity, and critical intellect. Those were the five main principles and that they really wanted me to be there. And I thought, this is like a dream come true, you know, an entire country that's going to be basing its uh, education system on on contemplative education, among other things. And the reason they were doing this is that, of course, Bhutan is a Buddhist country. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it's been a very protected country. The culture has been quite intentionally preserved there. It's hard for people to get in, and and they've been very cautious about any kind of intervention in that situation. But... In the last 10 years or so, with the internet and satellite TV and cell phones and all this, the Western world has really penetrated that whole situation. And it's causing, as you might expect, a profound upheaval among especially the young people. Living in a very traditional agricultural society, strong family and religious values— and suddenly, 
you can see whatever you see when you turn on the TV, you know, and it's a lot of it is very, very jarring and out of place. So it's caused an upheaval. And the, the government has been very, very concerned about this because back in the 70s, the government decided that the whole principle of government there was going to be based on gross national happiness it, rather than gross national product. Rather than having a money-based system of values, you're going to look more broadly at what is this life about anyway? It's not just having money in your pocket. You want to lead a happy life. You know, it's essentially a very Buddhist philosophy. You know, that we all want to be happy. And what does that really mean? And they're very astute there. You know, they looked and saw, you know, well, material wealth is not doing it. You know, it's not making people really happy. That happiness is very temporary. And after you've had what you can buy for a while and you want more and more and more, and there's suddenly a point where it's not happiness anymore. It's just greed and compulsion. Not that everybody's like that, of course, but they realized that to base a government on the conventional gross national product was not the way they wanted to go. So they adopted this back in the 70s under the the king, before Bhutan became a constitutional monarchy, which uh, it did voluntarily. The king gave up his leadership and elections were held, and now they have their first government. And this is very recent, so they're just really finding their way into what it means to govern based on creating that kind of happiness for people. So one of the things that they discovered was that, you know, with this incursion of information from the West, TV and the rest of it, that it was undermining the basis of this cultural happiness, which had been there and still is very much there, still very much alive. They could see the writing on the wall. More of the young people are drinking and getting into drugs and losing their connections with their families and, you know, the whole thing that most industrialized countries around the world have experienced. Bhutan never went through an industrial period. They went straight from the Middle Ages into the Information Age. They leapfrogged. Exactly. <laughs> so, to make a long story short, the government decided that the only way to really make sure that gross national happiness wasn't just a slogan was to really reform the education system so that people had a really solid education so that they themselves could individually counteract the influences of all this media and information materialism from the West. You can't just tell people that that's a bad thing. People have to figure it out on their own. So they thought, we need the best education system we can get for our people in order to preserve the integrity that's already there. And do you feel that the information is something that's inherently destructive or bad, or is it something that's explainable some other way? Right. Well, obviously, there's nothing inherently wrong with any information. It's like here. When students are in middle school or elementary school, in many cases, they're taught how to be media savvy. They're taught that the things they see on TV are not just there for their edification. They're a lot of times there to sell a product, 
to get people to start thinking a certain way so that they'll want certain things. It creates need. And that's why one of the principles of the educational reform was developing critical intellect so that the students in Bhutan who see all this stuff coming in from the outside can make an intelligent decision about it and decide, well, yeah, I'm going to buy a a scooter, but I'm not going to buy a scooter this year and then next year get a motorcycle and the year after that get a car and then start paving every road I can find because I understand what the implications of that are going to be for me and my family because I've learned about this. I mean, there are plenty of examples throughout Asia of what has happened to communities and countries when this kind of sudden westernization happens, what it does to people. And because people there are still very much connected to their families, there's so much heart and warmth among the people there. They are not going to want that. You talk to people now who are educated, and they understand the lure of Western materialism, but they're well-educated enough to realize that we don't want this to happen. How can we have gradual, sustainable growth, which preserves our basic culture and way of life and our environment? Because the environment there is spectacular. And because the government has put in so many protections for the environment, I mean, you can't drive your car down and wash it in the stream. You can't cut down a tree on your property without a permit. So there's a tremendous amount of protection of the environment, protection and support of the Buddhist culture that's there. Things are well taken care of on a human level, on an environmental level. It's really a very, very uh, enlightened uh, society, if you will. Yeah, and I find it interesting that instead of when this sort of Western culture started to become pervasive, that instead of locking down further, it sounds like there's been a movement to respond to it instead of just push it away further. We've seen that happen in history too, where culture will just get extremely rigid or extreme about not letting something in. Yeah. And then it gets weird anyway. (laughs) That's right. And I think they realize that westernization on a certain level is inevitable. You can't just build walls and keep it out. On the other hand, there are certain things that are clearly harmful. For example, they banned the sale of cigarettes in the country. You know, the, you could say, well, that's a reality. You know, why not let it in? Well, the, it's clear that that's harmful to people. So they banned the sale of cigarettes, and then smuggling started to happen. Right. So then, while we were there, they banned cigarette smoking. You can't possess them, and you can't smoke them. So, you know, on the one hand, they're they have the ability to tighten where they feel like it needs strong regulation. On the other hand, they're willing to open up to the world. Their openness to the best of the West, if you will, is extraordinary. They're just willing to take in people's ideas and practices and really adapt them to their situation. And that's what they're doing with this educational reform movement that just started. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could say some about what it was like there being at the conference, like what kinds of things were discussed, just maybe some of the highlights of the conference itself. Well, it was an amazing thing. None of us had ever been to anything like this before. There were 
25 experts, if you will, from different fields around the world, including not just education, but sustainability and cultural integrity, all with a mind for education, but they didn't want just educators there. So there were 25 of us, and there were 25 Bhutanese scholars and officials. So we made the inner group of 50 who was actually doing the work, most of the work, and then there were 120 observers who were contributing in less direct ways, also from around the world, but mostly Bhutanese. And, you know, I thought it's an unwieldy group, but there was so much interconnection. I mean, many of these people I'd known from other venues, but many of them I didn't, of course. The wonderful way in which everybody in that uh, workshop shared their different perspectives and it made this incredibly intricate whole and it just had the effect of energizing everyone who was there now frankly some of the Bhutanese officials who came to this meeting I think were pretty skeptical because it was really the prime minister and the education minister who were driving this reform and you have to realize that almost everyone in Bhutan with the exception of some of the higher officials, was educated in the British system, the old traditional lecture exam British system. Now, I know what that's like. I went to the University of Singapore for a year, and you'd sit in this massive classroom and take notes, and then at the end of the semester, you'd take a big exam, and that was it. You know, you're just feeding back the information. So suddenly, they're inviting in these holistic and contemplative educators, and there was a lot of skepticism. But because of this kind of synchronization that happened among the people who were there, people just started lighting up. Even the most skeptical among the officials just suddenly got it. They realized what has been happening in the West over the last 50 years or so, depending on how far back you want to go with holistic education. But so much wealth of this is how it can be done and be done well. So that the people of Bhutan, the students of Bhutan, are actually living this education. It's not something separate. It's not something you learn about. It's something you actually participate in. It's something that goes to your heart as well as your mind. And when they got it, things just took off. It was the most amazing workshop any of us had ever been to. Every night, the government officials, after we closed, would huddle, examine all the papers from all the groups, and come up with a reformatting of the next day's workshop based on what we'd done. Mm. Originally, the idea was that they would just import holistic and contemplative curriculum and give it to their teachers, and they'd just do it. The usual approach in education, you know, you've got good idea and the teachers can handle it, so you set up the class that way and everybody learns this. Well, holistic and contemplative education isn't like that. It's not a top-down approach. It's not a (laughs) top-down approach. It's not an external thing. By the second day, they had understood that the biggest priority was teacher education, that they really understood that the teachers themselves needed to not just understand this new approach, but actually live it, actually teach that way in the classroom. Complete change of approach. So they got that. And 
every night. So we'd have these meetings all during the day, and it was so hilarious because when we went in there, the prime minister addressed us the very first time. He was there every day. He addressed us, and he said, you know, you will be mercilessly exploited during this week. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. They just worked us to death, but they worked even harder. And by the end of the five-day workshop, they had a three-year plan, the first phase of which was to begin in 10 days with a facilitator training. The facilitators would then have three workshops that they would lead in which all the principals of all the schools in Bhutan would be brought to. So they had these three meetings with the principals, each a week long, completely reorienting the principals to this approach. And then over the next two years, all the teachers in the entire country would be brought in for various workshops on this whole approach. In the meantime, all these other auxiliary functions would go in, websites with all kinds of supportive material and development of curriculum to support this and so forth. None of us had ever seen that kind of responsiveness by any kind of an organization to the work that happens in a workshop. You know, In fact, they had invited funders from the United Nations and from various private foundations to the workshop. And by the end of the workshop, all these funders had agreed to support this initiative because Bhutan is not a wealthy country, so it relies a lot on, on outside support. It was just completely phenomenal what happened and how quickly it all happened. We were all just blown away. <laughs> wow. Wow. And what, I'm wondering, what are some of the main things? I mean, you mentioned the curriculum and you mentioned sort of bringing teachers involved. What kind of things do you think they'll end up doing in those different workshops or different facilitator trainings? Well, I think a lot of these details still have to be worked out. Sure. You know, I, I'm the surprised main, they're not already done. I'm me too. <laughs> I, they probably are. <laughs> I looked at my computer today, so they may be finished by now. But the main thing that struck them was that meditation needed to be part of the whole educational journey. Wow. You might think in a Buddhist country that's not such a big deal, but in traditional Vajrayana Buddhist countries, most of the meditative practices happen in the monastery. Right. They don't happen in the village. There's a lot of devotional practice that happens among the people. There's a tremendous support for the monasteries, but people don't meditate. You only meditate if you go to the monastery. So the idea of bringing meditation so that teachers, principals, students are all practicing every day, two or three times a day, is a huge change. If you're starting with meditation and you're slowing down enough to really connect with the students, with the material that you're reading, to really understand it on an intellectual level, on a personal emotional level, on a group dynamic level, how can we bring what we're studying to life in our community, right here in this classroom, so that when you go out and you graduate, then you can do the same thing with it in the world. You know, we've got to have a microcosm of 
that approach in this classroom. And it starts with the teacher. You know, the teacher, in a sense, has to relearn how to study, has to relearn how to listen to the students. That's a very demanding process because it requires inner reflection. And it's not something that's generally understood in the world as being something that's valuable. In most educational systems, it's all in what you can produce out there. And that's, of course, extremely important. But from a contemplative perspective, if you access your inner richness and bring that to what you're producing out there, it becomes not only richer and more valuable, but more sustainable because it's not something separate and isolated that you've created it out there. It's something that you have a heart and mind connection with, and other people do too. It's that kind of depth that they suddenly got. They realized that this was part of their heritage, you know, Buddhist country's heritage, and that they really wanted to bring it in as uh, a way to sustain what, they, what they've been so blessed to have there in that country. You already mentioned that prior to this whole reform movement, meditation was something that happened in the monastery, so it sort of separated out in some way. Have you noticed any other things that were different in their original sort of Buddhist-based education that are different in what we're calling contemplative education, that they're sort of different principles that they're now adopting? Yeah, well, this is such an interesting thing to me because... uh, we at Naropa, for example, uh, you know, we learned contemplative education from Naropa's founder, Choyim Trimbarubache, who was Tibetan. You know, and he came to the West, and he realized that Western education had incredible value and richness, but that it was missing these other dimensions. And Naropa University, Naropa Institute originally, was founded on how you can bring those two together. So, for the last 35 years, we've been working on that at Naropa and how to not just become a Buddhist school, because that's not relevant for the West, but how can you take the principles and practices of awareness, mindfulness, and compassion and enrich the educational approach in the West? So, that's what we've been working on very diligently at Naropa all these years. So you had a place like Bhutan who realizes that they need some of this. You know, They can't just go into the monastery and get it. They have to come here because we've done the processing work and bring it back because they want a culturally integral society based on Buddhism, but it's not a Buddhist society in the way the monasteries are. It's a secular society with rich cultural and religious under and overtones. And they want it to be something that works in the world. They want to be able to build you know, hydroelectric plants, and they want to forest properly, and they want to do all these things that, that are very much secular functions. But they want this dimension there so that there is that real depth that it's not something that happens just on the on the surface yeah that's so fascinating and it's kind of neat to hear about that happening on a country scale yeah. it just makes me think maybe you know in 20 25 years there are 
greatest export will be happiness or contemplative education that they've been able to experiment with and refine, you know, taking what you guys have been working on for so long at Naropa. That's exciting. It's very exciting to have something like this done on that scale because up till now it's just been individual schools in the West that have adopted this approach. Right. You know, there's never been a school district, you know, let alone an entire country. Yeah. Granted, it's a small country, but still it's got all the complexities of uh, any other large governmental organization. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.